that someone says, thanks. for city slickers. Anyhow, we lived in California and um, very rarely ever saw anyone famous. Kind of disappointed. Saw Larry Hagman riding a motorcycle, you know, from um, I Dream of Genie. And at the airport, I saw little Richie. You know, he came up, he pulled up his big limousine and all the sky cabs, you know, around, helped people with their luggage. Dropped all their luggage and went to go help him. He was peeling off $20 bills with all these sky cabs taking his luggage. Saw Joan Rivers at the airport once. She must have had 12 trunks when she was waiting for it, you know. So sometimes we see pe famous people. There's one story about Robert Redford. A man saw him as he was getting into an elevator. And uh, she followed him, or a woman, I should say. And he, before he got into the elevator, he says, are you the real Robert Redford? He looked at her and said, only when I'm alone. <laughs> Which means... All of us are different when we're alone. Mark Twain says we all are like the moon. We all have a dark side. No one knows what we are really like when we are alone, except maybe our spouses. But we all have a dark side. David had a dark side. Look at 1 Kings chapter 15. 1 Kings chapter 15. Everybody knows about the sin of David and Bathsheba. That's probably the most well-known sin in history, besides Adam and Eve. You mean you talk to unbelievers, they've never read the Bible. You hear about David and Bathsheba? Yeah, they have. And notice what God says about David in 1 Kings 15, verse 5. Because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Remember what God said about him, his, about David, says that he had not turned aside from anything that he commanded all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. David had a relationship, adulterous affair with Bathsheba, and he conspired to murder Uriah, her husband. There's like one thing that God hasn't forgotten. You know, God forgets sins, I know that, but David, man after God's own heart, he was faithful and trustful, except in this one area, he committed murder. Now, the thing is that, you know, we're not here to condemn David or criticize David. Really, we justify what he did or find excuses, because people have excuses for everyone who sins today. But we want to put David's sin in a proper perspective. If you think about it, we're as bad as David. Everyone here has committed a sin that we don't want anyone else to know about. The thing is with David's sin, everybody knows about it. Books have been written about it. Movies have been made about it. Preachers have preached about it for decades. And they will continue if the Lord tarries. Everybody knows about David's sin with Bathsheba. And David deceived himself thinking he could hide from his sin but he couldn't. And oftentimes we are tempted to think we can hide from our sins as well. And we'll never get caught. We can do whatever we want to do. And God had been working in David's life. You know, God delivered him from the Philistines. God kept him from taking the life of Saul. God kept him from running into Jerusalem and declaring himself as king. He was waiting on God. The last time we read of David committing sin is when he went to spend time with the Philistines. Ever since then, he walked with God, he prayed to God, sought God's guidance. But now, he falls into the sin of adultery and murder. What happened? Why, how could a man after God's own heart commit this atrocious crime? What happened? How could David fall into sin? 
And David's sin was so devastating, had far-reaching consequences on his life, his family's life, and the nation of Israel. David's about 50 years old when he commits this sin. And for the rest of his life, it's ruined because of his one sin. So we need to think about sin in our lives. Think about the consequences of that sin. It's far-reaching. So we're going to learn how David fell into sin and learn some principles to make sure it doesn't happen to us and what we need to do after it does happen. We spend the next few weeks talking about this. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your goodness. And we see, Lord, we talk about your servants. You talk about the good things as well as the bad things. And about our own life as well. Good things happen and bad things happen. We all commit sin. And there are always consequences for those sins, even though we may be forgiven. I just pray this morning, Lord, that we'll think about David's sin, how you confronted him, and how you restored him to a right relationship with you. Let's think about our sin and the consequences of it, and how we need to be restored to you as well, Father. Fill us all with your spirit this morning to understand your word, to accept it, and most of all, to apply it to our lives. And we pray, Lord, you speak to your children this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We want to talk about the principle of sowing and reaping. There is a principle. Look at Hosea chapter 8, verse 7. Some information on it. Hosea comes after Daniel. Look at Hosea chapter 8, verse 7. The first part of that verse simply says, For they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. When you think of a whirlwind, you think of a tornado. Tornadoes are terrible. They're devastating. They're destructive. The nation of Israel sowed the sin of idolatry and reaped the whirlwind of God's judgment from Assyria. It went into captivity. When you think of sowing the wind, think of a cool, gentle breeze on a hot summer night. We're sowing the wind. We think everything is okay with our sin, but we will reap the tornado of our lives we don't take care of it. This is a familiar proverb about the results of doing evil. You sow the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. Israel walked in their own way, sowing the wind, and as a result suffered the consequences, was reaping the whirlwind, the tornado, that came through in the form of Assyria that took them all into captivity. Turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. Verses 27 and 29. Here Solomon is giving his sons some advice concerning adultery. Proverbs chapter 6, look at verse 27. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Here are two rhetorical questions David or Solomon asked his sons, and the answer to these is no. You cannot engage in adultery, in the sin of adultery, without suffering the consequences. There's always going to be consequences. Because he goes on to say, So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. There are consequences. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Another principle of sowing and reaping. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. We reap what we sow. This is the law of the soil. You plant one tomato seed, how many tomatoes do you get back? A bunch. You sow an apple seed, how many apples do you get back? A whole lot for decades to come. There's an illustration of a man who was very wealthy, he was a millionaire, but he was very greedy and was caught in bootlegging. So he was sent to prison. And his friend came to visit him. 
And one of the jobs he had in prison was sewing burlap bags. So his friend looked at him and says, I see you're sewing, huh? He says, no, I'm reaping. Think about it. He's reaping what he did in his life. So if we choose to sow seeds of carnality, we're going to reap all kinds of problems. And the thing is, when we reap these seeds, they even get worse. The consequences of being involved in sin, one commentator says, consequences such as broken trust, painful memories, bruised reputations, and fractured hearts. The pain we reap will always surpass the pleasures in the sowing. Now there is pleasure when we're involved in sin. That's why we do it. David enjoyed a pleasurable night with Bathsheba. But he had the consequences he had to pay for it. The consequences he paid was a lot worse than the pleasure he enjoyed for one single night of pleasure. He lost his whole family. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. God is still with us when we sin. He's also in the consequences. But he also restores us. And we're going to talk about that as well, how David is restored. Let's go to this illustration of the principle of sowing and reaping. 1 Samuel chapter 11. We'll look at chapter 11 this week. When I get back, we'll look at chapter 12. But in chapter 11, we see David the sinner. And David's sin is adultery. And there are two factors that lead to David's sin. First of all is David's laziness. Look at verse 1. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go about the battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. This takes place after what we learned in chapter 11, Ammonites. They go now and they surround the city. They lay siege to it. So for the whole winter they laid siege to it because they didn't fight during the winter. Weather was bad, a lot of rain, roads were impassable, it was hard to come up with fruit and supplies and food. So they went to the springtime and resumed their battles. So that's what it means by the time when kings went to battle. Warren Worsby gives us some insight into this battle. The count of David's sin is given against the background of Jacob's Siege of Rabah, the key city of the Ammonites. This is described in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel and also 1 Chronicles chapter 20. The Ammonite army had fled to the walled city of Rabbah, and Joab and the troop, Israel troops were giving the people time to run out of food and water, and they were then attacked. So David sent Joab and the troops to lay siege to Rabbah, but he himself remained in Jerusalem. It was probably April or May. So where should David have been? with the army. But he stays home. He's lazy. He knows what it says there. When the evening came, David arose from his bed. The idea there, he's taking his afternoon siesta. He's been in bed just about all afternoon. It's getting dark, so he gets up. He's getting ready to go to bed. I mean, he's been sleeping all afternoon. It's the evening, you know. He's bored. David rose from his bed and walked around the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So first we see David's laziness. He should have been out in the battle fighting. He turns over that responsibility to Joab where he should have been doing it. David had so much leisure time that he became vulnerable to Satan's temptations. When we have a lot of time at leisure, when Satan tempts us the most. We need to keep busy. But David wasn't. And if David would have built his army, chapters 11 and 12, never would have happened. Not only was David lazy, but he was also lustful. Look at verse 2, if you read. He sees this very beautiful woman taking a bath. David committed the sin because he had a passion for sex. Second Samuel chapter 5 says he had a bunch of wives and concubines. How many wives and concubines does one man need? He had dozens of them. His passions were not satisfied. They only increased. And that's what happens. We think if we satisfy our passions, it will stop. No, it only increases them. What David did was in direct contradiction to God's command. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 17. 
Let's all turn there. There are three commands God gave the kings of Israel. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 17. As I read these verses, I want you to pick those three commands out. Deuteronomy chapter 17, look at verse 14. Now remember, there are three commands. I want you to find the three commands. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set up a king over me like the other nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you, the Lord your God chooses, one from your own countrymen. You shall set king over yourselves, and you may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. Moreover, you shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord hath said to you, you shall never again return that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart be turned away, nor shall he greatly increase in silver and gold for himself. So what are the three simple commands? What was the first one? Multiply horses. Now it's very simple. It's there in verse 16 and 17. We're supposed to have a bunch of horses. What's the second command? Wives. Do not have any wives? Well, just one. And what was the third command? Money. Wealth. Three simple commands. David kept the first and the third, but he didn't keep the second. He probably said, what's wrong with having a harem? Everybody else does it. Just because the world does it doesn't mean God wants us to do it. So David's in direct contradiction to God's command. He was multiplying wives for himself. Why is the problem? Why shouldn't you have a bunch of wives? What does he say there? Lest his heart turn away from what? Following God. That's exactly what happened to Solomon. Don't have a bunch of wives that will turn your heart away from God, from following him. So here's David. It's evening time. He's taking a walk on the roof of his house. From there he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath. Now, a woman is described as very beautiful in appearance. The Hebrew word is only used for those persons who are striking in physical appearance. Swindoll says, really, where the scriptures include the word very, and when it does, it's not exaggeration. So this woman was very, very beautiful. She was strikingly. David probably sees her and says, well, this is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And David's here taking a walk, and he sees this woman... And he begins to lust in his heart. Look at Job 31, verse 1. What does God's word tell us about lust? Job 31, verse 1. Notice what Job said. I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I gaze at a virgin? How can I look at some other woman? Lustfully, that's the idea. Look at Psalm 101, verse 3. Psalm 101, verse 3. David says, I'll set no worthless thing before my eyes. That's the idea of lusting. Warren Worsby says, A man cannot be blamed if a beautiful woman crosses his path and comes into his line of vision. But if he deliberately lingers for a second look, he's asking for trouble. So man, sometimes a beautiful woman is just there. You look at her. But you stand and stare, take a second look, then lustful thoughts begin to develop in your hearts. And what does Jesus tell us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28? Even a man thinks about it, he's committed adultery in his heart. So here's David thinking about this woman lustfully. I mean, he has enough wives and concubines. You'd think, why is he going to be doing this? Verse 3 says, So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David says to the servant, Who's this woman I'm looking at? Now David was in his roof on the top of his palace, and across the street he saw this other house, where Bathsheba's house, and sees her taking a bath. And he says, who's this woman? And the servant says, yeah, it's, it's Bathsheba, but she's married. See, the servant knew what David was thinking about. David, he's, she's married. Why do you want a, a married woman? You've got enough wives. That's basically what he's saying between the lines. You think the servant knew David? I bet he did. 
She's married. And she's his daughter of Eliam, who's one of David's mighty men. 2 Samuel 23 34 tells us that. He's off in battle fighting the Ammonites. Now, this is the daughter of Eliam. And what is interesting, Eliam was the son of David's counselor, Ahithophel. So Bathsheba was her, or his granddaughter. When Absalom revolts against David, Ahithophel helps Absalom. You wonder why? Because he messed around with his granddaughter. He ruined my granddaughter's life. That's why Ahithophel goes and sides with Absalom. See, there's consequences already going on here. And also the servant says, that's the wife of Uriah, who's also one of David's mighty men. 2 Samuel 23, 39 tells us that. You know these men, David. That's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. So the servant knew David. So really we think we can hide things from our spouses, but no, you can't. We try to hide sin, you know, people find out. Now the question we need to ask ourselves, what's Bathsheba doing taking a bath out in the open? Don't you think she knew who lived across the street? Don't you think you knew that she saw David walking around the roof, on the roof many nights? Now David, the Swindoll talks about this. You know, David's in the wrong, but um, Bathsheba isn't blameless. Swindoll quotes another author and says this. When we read this terrible story, we instinctively think the offense is David's sin. But this attractive woman cannot be entirely excused. Bathsheba was careless and foolish, lacking the usual Hebrew modesty. Or she certainly would not have washed in a place where she knew she could be overlooked. From her rooftop, she could often have looked out to the royal palace and must have known that she could be seen. It is not enough merely to avoid our sin ourselves. The New Testament insists that Christians must ensure that do not become stumbling blocks to others, as Romans chapter 14. If David had gone to war, he would not have seen Bathsheba that night. If she had thought seriously about her actions, she would not have put, her, have put temptation in his path. Some commentators think Bathsheba may have done this on purpose. We don't know Bathsheba's heart, but she is entirely blameless. So here we see we must be modest. Swindoll said this, when it comes to sensuality, we are to be righteous. That means that we have to give thought to our actions, our attitudes, our dress, and our conduct. It's very important that women dress modestly. Now again, David's at fault. He's completely in the wrong here. David's one who stopped, stared, schemed, and sinned. He is responsible. He purposely disobeyed God's commandment and committed adultery. That was in his heart from the beginning. But then... Bathsheba isn't totally innocent either. And verse 4 is very, very important. And David sent messengers and took her. Now that word doesn't mean took by force. It means that she just came along willfully. So David didn't rape her or anything like that. She willingly came. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. That phrase there is very, very important. Purify herself from her uncleanness. Refers required ceremonial purification bath that a woman took when she was done with her menstrual cycle. Leviticus 15 tells us that. After the women were done with their period, they took a special bath. Some commentators think this is the bath that Bathsheba is taking that night. David looks at her. The whole point of this is to inform us that Bathsheba was not pregnant before she went to David. The child is David's and nobody else's. That's the whole purpose of this verse right here. It wasn't Uriah's child. It was David's child. So David was lazy and he was lustful. David's temptation was, is not an act of sin. You know. We are tempted every day. 
watch TV, look at magazines, drive down the road, you know, you see these signs, pictures. But his disobedience came when he lusted in his heart and deliberately sought her out for the purpose of having a relationship with her, a sexual one. When we're tempted to plunge into the old life, the sinful, lustful life, we need to remember what Augustine said. Thou fool, dost thou not know that thou art carrying God around with thee? When we're tempted and we're thinking about some coming to that temptation, we need to think about, you're saved. You're a Christian. God's living inside you. Think twice before you act. Again, David quotes another author here. Swindoll does, I should say. It says, In our members there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once the secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality. And the only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not here fill us with hatred toward God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and the will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves as, is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? That's what we're saying to ourselves. Is this really sin I'm going to commit? And is it really not permitted to me? Yes, expect it from me now? Here's my particular situation to appease desire. I'm not at fault here. It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. Therefore, the Bible teaches us in times of temptations in the flesh, there is one command, flee fornication. This is 1 Chronicles chapter, 1 Corinthians 6. Flee idolatry, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Flee useful lusts, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Flee the lusts of the world, 1 Peter chapter 1. There is no resistance to Satan in lust other than flight. Every struggle against lust and one's own strength is doomed to failure. So this author here is saying, it's not that we succumb to Satan, we just forget about God. Forget what God's word tells us. And the only defense against temptation is to flee. That's what Joseph did, right? Potiphar's wife? Come lay with me. He said, nope, I'm leaving. I've given my life to God. How can I do such a thing? He ran. left his best jacket, dinner jacket there with her. Ran off. As David looks upon Bathsheba and he desires her, he forgot about God. Just think of the things David has accomplished. He unified the country. The country went from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles. He brought the ark home to God, to Jerusalem. He was desired to build a temple for God. He started to collect supplies and money for it. And all of a sudden, he forgets about God. That's what happens to us when we're tempted to sin. It's not just sexual sins, any kind of sin. So don't sit there and think, well, I've never committed a sexual sin, so it's not talking about me. It's any sin it's talking about here. The illustration just happens to be immorality. Attempt to lie, attempt to cheat, attempt to steal, whatever it is. Attempt to criticize someone. Go, if you will, to James chapter 1. Even David, a man after God's own heart, cannot resist temptation. David's sin of temptation, his life here, is illustrated by James chapter 1. Let's turn there. James chapter 1, look at verse 14. This is the reason for David's temptation. Why he succumbed to it. Verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away, enticed by his own lusts. That's why we give in a temptation. We are enticed by our own lusts. Satan knows what our lust button is. We all have a lust button. Doesn't have to necessarily be immorality. It could be lying. It could be cheating. Whatever it is. But we all have that button. And Satan just pushes that button. Could be a desire for rebellion, disobedience. 
So we have that lust button pushed, and we give in to it. Each one is tempted, we is carried away and enticed by his own lust. That's the reason for our temptations, or succumbing to our temptations. Look at the reaction to it, verse 15. But when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. The lust button is pushed, and we give birth to it. We go ahead, we succumb to it, and we go ahead and commit the thing we know we're not supposed to do, because we've forgotten all that God said about thou shalt not do this. These the reality, or the results there in verse 15. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Does this describe David? He is tempted, his lust button is pushed, which is immorality. He gives in to it. A baby is born. And what ultimately happens to the baby? The baby dies. Uriah dies. A lot of innocent people are going to die in the pursuit of David's desires to have one more woman. Death is the result. John Phillips said this, The father of sin is Satan and the mother of sin is self. Don't just blame the devil all the time. David ignores all the warning signs, all the thoughts of the consequences of a sin. I'm sure David thought about this. He knew thou shalt not commit adultery somewhere in the Bible. He knew that. Besides, back in chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, it says the king was to take a copy of the law and copy it for himself, or his own personal copy, in the presence of all the priests. I assume David did that. I'm sure he came to that phrase that says, thou shalt not commit adultery. David thinks about it, he thinks about the consequences, but if I figures, I'm king. I can do what I want. This illustrates the passing pleasure of sin. I'm sure they had an enjoyable night. Most commentators think it was just a one-time event. It wasn't a continuing affair, but just one night. One simple night of pleasure. Swindoll talks about the consequences of sin. says, this has been my observation over the years that the devil never tips his hand in temptation. He shows you only the beauty, the ecstasy, the fun, the excitement, and the stimulating adventure of soul and desire. But he never tells the heavy drinker, tomorrow morning there will be a hangover. Ultimately, you'll ruin your family. He never tells the drug user early on, this is the beginning of a long, sorrowful, dead-end road. He never tells the thief, you're going to get caught, friend. You do this, you wind up behind bars. He certainly doesn't warn the adulterer, you know, pregnancy is a real possibility, or you could get a life-threatening disease. Are you kidding? Face it. When sin is done and all the penalties of that sin come due, the devil is nowhere to be found. He smiles as you fall, but he leaves you with no encouragement when the consequences kick in. We don't think about the consequences, and there are always consequences for sin. Butler has an interesting take on this. It says, David and Bathsheba did not know at the time of their adulterous affair that Bathsheba would become pregnant as a result of their sin. Now, who's in charge of pregnancies? Is God right? God could have kept Bathsheba from having a child, right? But he doesn't. It would take a while for her to discover this fact. Is always true regarding pregnancy and is also true regarding the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin begin immediately after one has sinned. But the awareness by the sinner of the consequences is often slow in coming. This sin makes this makes sin so subtly dangerous. Folks have the habit of concluding that if nothing bad happened to them in a few days after their evil deed, that this means that their evil deed will not be so evil. Therefore, they sin and more and more. Don't be fooled into thinking sin is harmless just because the evil consequences of sin takes a while to manifest themselves to you. I don't know how long it takes for a woman to realize when she becomes pregnant after the sexual act and she becomes pregnant. I don't know. Maybe days, maybe weeks. Who knows? I don't know. And that's the last thing they were thinking about that's you becoming pregnant. But the consequences began the moment they had the affair. 
But the consequences weren't evident until weeks, maybe months later. There are always consequences for sin. This reminds me of a story. A boy was jumping on his bed. His mom always told him, jump on the bed, you're going to be in trouble. So he's up there jumping on his bed. The mom said, you know what? You keep jumping on your bed, you're going to have to go live with the consequences. He stopped jumping, says, they have a swimming pool? Somebody got that? Anyhow, let's go on. David's sin of adultery. No, David's sin of a dis- deceit. He's got to cover up his sin. He doesn't want to get caught. First notice his unscrupulous plan, verses 6 through 8. Then David went and sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, and David asked concerning himself, welfare of Joab and the people in the state of the war. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and a present from the king was sent out to after him. David could do one of two things now. He knows Bathsheba is pregnant. He knows he's the dad. He knows she's a married woman. What do you do now? He has two choices, and only two choices. The first choice is obvious. What is it? Confess your sin to God. That's the first choice. Anytime we sin, that's our first choice. Confess it and forsake it. The second choice is to pretend it never happened. Live a life of hypocrisy and deceit. That's the path David chooses. F.B. Meyer said this, We are more eager to conceal our sin before men than confess it before God. And that's so true. David could have confessed it and ended it right then and there, but he doesn't. David begins to panic. And when we're in panic, we think of a plan, and when we are panicking, we never make wise decisions. So we're going to see the folly of David's decisions here. He says, I'll call Uriah here. So he sends a note to Joab and says, Joab, send Uriah home to me. Now, Joab isn't a dumb man. You think he knows David too? He's probably saying, now, why does David want to see Uriah? Well, I want to talk about the battle plan. Then let's talk about the, how the battle is going. What does he send for me? I can go there and tell him how the battle is going. But he sends for Uriah, and he pretends he's concerned about the welfare of the army. I'm just really concerned about Joab and you guys. How are you guys doing? You're telling me all about it. David's playing a farce here. He's covering up everything. He's not he's concerned for the army. He wasn't concerned for the army. He was concerned about himself getting caught. So he says, go home, wash your feet, which means go home, take off your shoes, put on your slippers, kick back your reclining chair, just have a good time, and and really just have a good time with your wife. I'm going to send some food with you too, David, so you and Bathsheba can enjoy a nice dinner. So he sends him champagne and caviar and a nice steak and all that stuff. So go home, Uriah, enjoy yourself. He's hoping that they'll have relationships that night, and everyone will think that Uriah is the dad. So we see this unscrupulous plan of David. But notice the unsuccessful plan. It doesn't work. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all thy servants of his lord and did not go down to his home or to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said, Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? He calls Uriah the next day. Uriah, why didn't you go home? What's the matter with you? Must be something wrong. You should have gone home. But notice what David, Uriah says. This is a rebuke to David. Verse 11. The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. My lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life, my life, or your soul, I will not do this thing. The ark is now living in tents. The ark is living in a tent. We're fighting a battle here, David, and I should go home and enjoy myself? Because where should David have been? In the tents with his army. So this is a mild rebuke to David. And then that doesn't work. That was plan B. Now that was plan C. Then David said to Uriah, stay here today also, and tomorrow I'll let you go. Oh, give one more chance, Uriah. One more chance to go home. 
So you already remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. That didn't work. He said to go home to his wife. So plan A didn't work. Plan B didn't work. Plan C didn't work. Okay, here's plan D. I'll drive one more thing. Verse 13. Now David called him, and he ate, and he drank before him, and he made him drunk. In the evening he went out to lie in his bed with the Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. So plan D is David's getting desperate here. D is for desperate, right? I'll get him drunk. That's what I'll do. He'll be as drunk as stupid. He'll go home and lie with his wife and everything will be okay. But that doesn't work either. So he goes on to plan E, which is evil. And we see the third sin David committed, well, that was murder. Look at verse 14. We see the details here. And at verse, this is the treachery, verse 14. Now it came about in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and to draw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So David's plan of deception now includes death. The only way I can do this is kill him. So he sends a note, a sealed letter, and Uriah carries his death sentence with him. He has no idea what's going on. He orders Joab to arrange it for Uriah to die in battle. Now I said before, Joab wasn't a dumb man. Do you think he could read between the lines? think Joab knew what was going on? think he knew who Uriah was married to? You know, when you're married to a beautiful woman, everybody knows it. And then Uriah is sitting, and Joab's sitting there thinking, you know, what, what's David up to here? No, it was a tragedy, verse 16. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah in the place where he knew there was valiant men. And the men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent a report to David and all the events of the war. And he charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the king all of the war to the king, and it happens that the king's wrath rises, he says to you, Why did you go so near the wall of the city or the city to fight? Do you not know that they were shoot from the wall? Who struck down Ahimelech, the son of Jerobosheth? Jerobosheth, yeah. Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him in front of the wall so that he died that day at Tebez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then as you should say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So Job is saying, go tell your David. And then he gets angry because people are getting dead. Just remind him of the story from Judges chapter 9. Where a man got too close to a city and lay too, threw a millstone over the wall and killed him. So just reminded him of that story. And then when he gets mad, he's all upset. He's ranting and raving. Just simply say, and by the way, Uriah is dead. And that should subside his anger. Think Joab knew David? Yeah. So David does, you know, right, what, the, you know, what Joab does, what David says, and knows the deception here in verse 22. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had said, sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the while and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Uriah's dead. You think that pleased David? But he's faking here. It says in verse 25, And David said to the messenger, Thus you should say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another, and make your battle against the city stronger, and overthrow it, and so encourage him. Yeah, you know, it's just a matter of providence. You know, when people get killed, it's just a matter of blind chance. So don't be discouraged, Joab, that you lost some men. Whose fault was it Joab lost those men? David's? And no, who else dies here besides Uriah? Other men do. Which shows when we have commit sin, the consequences of our sin often involves innocent people. Just don't think, hey, it's just me. It's my life. I want to ruin it. By taking drugs and drinking and becoming an alcoholic. It's my life. I can do what I want to do. If I don't go off and gamble all my money away, it's my life. Why does it concern you? Because it does concern other people. The consequences of our sin affects our family, affects our friends, affects our job. 
But join me, I'm hurting. No. We hurt so many other people because of our sin. And here David, not only murders Uriah, but he murders these other people as well. All these innocent people died. Let's go on. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. The time of mourning usually lasts for about seven days. And notice, no mention of David mourning. But he didn't mourn over Saul. He mourned over Abner, both unscrupulous men David mourned after. Here Uriah is murdered and David doesn't mourn at all. After seven days, David marries Bathsheba. And as soon as son is born to David and Bathsheba. Again, do you think Joab could read between the lines? Do you think Joab knows what's going on here? Oh, Uriah is dead. A week later, David marries Bathsheba. And then she's pregnant. Now think about it. Joab would now have leverage over David. David will be indebted now to Joab for the rest of his life. Think of the power Joab has now. I can do whatever I want now. David gives me a hard time. I'll just say, Uriah. When we stop deceiving ourselves, we think we're deceiving others, but in reality we're not. So David murdered him. And Swindoll says, and when we become desperate and involved in sin, sometimes we just don't think clearly. And Swindog goes on to say, I'll ask this question. Why in the world did David have to murder Uriah? What did he gain by it? Think about that. If Uriah had lived and come home from battle and found his wife pregnant, who would ever have connected it to David? David had done nothing. Never called Joab in, never tried to go home with his wife, never did, did nothing. Joab probably thought, what is mine? It is doubtful she would have ever said a word. Then after Uriah is killed, David immediately takes her to the place and marries her. It's been my observation that most adults can count to nine. You know what that means? You know, nine months? So who in the world was David hiding from? When you act in panic, you don't think logically. In fact, you usually don't think at all. You react. You overlook and cover up and smear over and cloud over and deny and scheme until you find yourselves in the midst of such a maze of lies that you can never escape or get out of the mess or get the mess untangled until finally you face someone honest enough to say, you are the man. So who's David kidding? No one. And notice the disapproval here, verse 27. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her into his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But, there's those divine buts, circle it. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. King James has the phrase displeasing. It displeased the Lord. And think about it. In verse 25, he says, you know, go tell Joab and don't let this thing displease you. David was more concerned about displeasing Joab than he was about displeasing God. That's usually what happens when we sin. We're more concerned about what other people are going to think about us than we are what God thinks about us. Now your sin, we can't hide our sin. Look at Numbers 32, verse 23. Numbers 32, verse 23. This is in the context of all the tribes going and conquering the land. Numbers 32. And two and a half tribes want to go on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Reuben, Gad, half tribe of Manasseh. And they promise... When you go and conquer the promised land, we will be there. We'll cross over with you and we'll fight for you. We read in Numbers 32, verse 23. Let me find it here. But if you will not do so, not go over and cross the Jordan, behold, you have sinned against the Lord. Be sure your sin will find you out. If you don't go out to battle, everybody's going to know and your sin will be found out. So that's the interpretation. The application is for us as well. Your sin is going to find you out. You cannot hide your sin forever. 
Look at Proverbs 28, verse 13. Proverbs 28, verse 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. David's concealing his transgression. Is he prospering? He's getting in deeper and deeper and deeper, isn't he? There's no of those divine butts. Verse 13, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. That's from God. We confess our sin and forsake them. Like the first John 1 9 says, we confess our sins. He is faithful and just, forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what David should have done. So what David had done did not go unnoticed. People knew what was going on. Committing adultery was wrong 3,000 years ago. It's still wrong today, but today society just over covers it up, right? It doesn't matter. Name a TV program today that doesn't have adultery or fornication in it. There isn't one. How many movies have it in it? How many books have it? I mean, it's all over. Is this a normal thing to do? Dave disobeyed four of the Ten Commandments, right? What are they? Covered your neighbor's wife, commit adultery, bear false witness, and murder. David committed all of them. See, David took advantage of God's grace. David presumed upon God. When David went and spent time with the Philistines, twice, did God graciously remove him from those dangerous situations? Two times. God said, David, you sinned, you acted foolishly, but I'm going to get you out of the problem. When David was about to kill the innocent shepherds that belonged to Nabal, remember Nabal? 1 Samuel 25. David said, I'm going to kill them all. Abigail stopped him. Well, it was God sending her to stop him. God intervened again. God stopped David from committing terrible sins. Gene Getz said this, David demonstrates that there comes a time in a man's life when he must bear the responsibility for his own actions. Usually God would step in and deliver David. This time God did not step in. God stepped aside. And he allowed David to commit this tragic sin. He could have kept the baby from being born. But he didn't. David, you presumed upon my grace too often. I'm not going to step in this time. You made your bed. How's that phrase go? Now you got to lie in it. And sometimes we presume upon God's grace. We keep doing foolish, stupid, sinful things. Expecting, well, God will get me out of it. And there might come a time where God will say, sorry. Tough love. And while we step in for our sons or get into trouble, there comes a time you've got to say, I'm not stepping in this time. You're going to deal with your sins. You've got to deal with the consequences. David had taken advantage of God's grace too often. Are we taking advantage of God's grace today? Think about it. They'll never find out. Romans chapter 15, verse 4, tells us why we read these stories. Romans chapter 15, verse 4, and why they're important for us to study and learn about. Romans 15, verse 4 says, Whatever was written in earlier times is written for our instruction, that through perseverance or patience and the encouragement of the Scripture we might have hope. David tells about these sort of details about, or God tells these sort of details about David, help us realize if we continue down the same path David did, there's going to be consequences for our sins. So are you keeping count of all David's sins? Let's see, there's lust, there's adultery, there's dishonesty, there's hypocrisy, there's murder, deception. You know, how can a man after God's own heart do such things? Because he has a sin nature. We should understand what having a sin nature means. There's no excuse, but we do have a sin nature. And if we're playing with sins, as one person says, you're living on borrowed time. You think you're getting away with your sin today, you may not get away with it tomorrow. The story about two people were on trial in San Diego for robbery. And the person who witnessed the crime was being examined by the prosecuting attorney. He asked these series of questions. Number one, were you at the scene when the robbery took place? Yes, sir, was the reply. And did you observe the two robbers? Again, the witness says, yes, I did. 
they then turned up the heat of, of his intensity and boomed out his last question. Are these two men present in the court today? And before the witness could answer, the two men raised their hands. See, that's weird to do. Are you guilty today? Yes, we are. I'm going to confess my sin. What David should have done a long time ago. God, I forsook you. I disobeyed you. But thank God you will forgive me. So that's the choice we've got to make. Now, in two weeks, when I get back, we'll talk about the consequences more in detail, chapter 12. So I'm going to read through chapter 12. And see how God dealt with the situation, how David dealt with the situation. But the thing we need to learn today is that we are not presuming upon God's grace. And the best course of action is not concealing our sin, but confessing it, forsaking it, and pleading God's forgiveness. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we just sit and think about how could David do such a thing? And when we think about it, we should ask ourselves the same question. How can we do such a thing? And I pray, Lord, we'll not continue to presume upon your grace, but we'll confess our sin, forsake it, and throw ourselves upon your mercy, grace, and love. I pray for each one here today, Lord. I don't know their condition of their lives, but you do, Lord. I know the condition of my life. I just pray, Lord, if anyone is hiding their sin, thinking they're getting away with it, that today is a day of confession. Today is a day of deliverance. And I just pray, Lord, we'll throw ourselves upon your mercy and grace, knowing that you will forgive us our sins because you promised to do so. And I pray for a person maybe here without Christ, they don't know you as their personal Savior, that today will be a day of salvation. They'll confess their sin to you, Lord, and ask you to save them from their sins. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I just pray, Lord, we'll think upon these things this week. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to sing freely, freely. back tonight, if you will, at 5 o'clock. We'll have a nice time of fellowship and food and hope you can come. Again, Dave will be speaking next Sunday morning and Floyd Sunday after that, so I hope we'll see you then. And uh, Dave, why don't you dismiss us in prayer?